0: each man then took his post at their retire so then these numerous hosts began to fire the cannon on each side did roar like thunder and youths in all their pride Welcome back so to the American on the Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll be looking at the fourth uh, bit of and of Wolf by Francis Parkman Jr. Specifically, we'll be looking at chapters 14 through 19, which covers uh, essentially the the war in 1957, this, the French and Indian war in 1957, and a bit of 1958, particularly uh, two major battles, one a French victory, a major French victory, and the other a significant uh, English victory, and that would be the, the taking of Fort William Henry by the French, and then the taking of Louisbourg by the, by the English, and that, that later event is really key to the emergence of General Wolfe, uh, this young, brilliant general who, who uh, led the final conquest of Quebec in, in 1760. So anyways, um, yeah, what to say about this section of the book. Um, I, you know, one thing, you know, I'm not that keen on talking too much about like the military history here, except saying it's some pretty good narrative history. I, I, I enjoy reading it, but I find it hard to talk about sometimes. But I like this section of the book because uh, Parkman is flipping quite a lot between the behind-the-scenes stuff, the stuff going on in Quebec, the stuff going on in London or the colonial capitals, and the stuff on, on the battlefield. And, and this section, I think, more than any other, does that flipping back and, back and forth. Um, so uh, that's... And, and I think it all kind of brings together a lot of threads that Parkman was working on through this whole history of New France, especially the especially the conflict and the inability of the French government, both in Quebec and in Paris, to really commit itself fully into the to, to the resources of the war. And I think this section is very, very important in explaining what Parkman sees as the the deep rooted cancer within within New France. And ultimately, the explanation about why why New France could not, did not, in, and maybe ultimately could not win this this war against the English when it when it became kind of for all. Uh, I think the the previous wars, King George's War, Queen Anne's War, uh, King William's War, these wars were always fought as as half measures. They were fought on the margins. A lot of them were fought as proxy wars, as we as we've seen in the other volumes. But this became a war for all the marbles and the English were just better prepared institutionally for that. Now, both sides had a lot of conflicts internally, but they're of different types. So in the British North American colonies, there's conflict between the goals of the different colonies, particularly New York and New England, seeming to have different goals about the frontier, about relations with Indians, about how much to commit to these conflicts. Some, Some of these wars were fought pretty much just by New England. Uh, Against the French Others You know yeah, that's That's the main pattern That that emerged Uh, They were the leadership in it And the war here Started out that way Where really the leadership Came from New England And to a lesser degree Virginia Um, But By By 1758 The English had kind of Gone all in And committed all their resources Or all the resources That they could To making sure they Dominated The Americas North America Once and for all and that's what opens the door for the conquest of Quebec, which we'll study and look at in the last two episodes of this series. So we get a couple chapters here um, that that do this quite well. One is, uh, the first one, chapter 14, is called Montcalm and Vaudreuil. So Montcalm is the major general that the French send sent to um to Quebec to, to lead the troops. And we saw he just had his great victory in Oswego in 1756 in the previous, uh, chap- in the previous chapters. Uh, that, that victory was described as Parkman as the greatest victory by France in all of American history. Um, and that might be true. Um, Fort William Henry, uh, a decisive victory in many ways, but maybe too little too late. And it's kind of overshadowed by another narrative, which we'll get to in a little bit. But he had just won this major victory. And the other character that is really described and talked about in this chapter is Vaudriel, who was the governor of Montreal. And so we're reminded now of things that Parkman wrote about in all of his previous books that despite absolutism, despite having this goal of a centralized system and a centralized state coming out of Paris, implemented in Quebec uh, kind of a, a new world version of French feudalism and ultimately French absolutism, the reality was a very conflicted system that was really prone to corruption, prone to internal conflicts, and you had a lot of overlapping and competing administrations. Whether it was the governor versus the intendant, or the governor versus the bishop of Quebec, or uh, the governor versus the other sub-governors, like the governors of Louisiana, Acadia, and Montreal, There are all these internal conflicts and Montcalm is just another voice in this babble that's that's kind of been established in Quebec. And since all these people have their authority, at least theoretically, from the king, they all think they are the pinnacle of this absolutist state, especially the governor, the bishop, the intendant. And now we have this general Montcalm. And the fact that they can't really get along and they have bad relations really undermines this, this war effort. There was never this unified war effort that eventually the English, I should say the British, under Pitt, are able to, to embrace. Um, so this chapter begins. It's, uh, it's set in 57 after the victory at Oswego. Um, and there's a lot of discussion here just about the internal conflicts, the life of Montcalm and his wife in Quebec, the, the views of, of Vaudreuil his his egoism his his self-centeredness his the gal, the, the the festivities of quebec kind of go on um it's a lot of pomp and circumstance that's also getting in the way of of a, of a pure focus on the war but big at the, at the heart of it though the really big problem is just internal conflicts between these figures and it really undermined this moment in which you know France only suffered really one major victory up to this point, and, or w- one major defeat, and all the rest were, were victories, some of them quite decisive, like at Oswego. Um, Parkman kind of sums this up, quote, the victory at Oswego had wrought marvels among the Indians, inspired the faithful, confirmed the wavering, and daunted the ill-disposed. The whole West was astir, ready to pour itself again in fire and blood against the English border. And even the Cherokees and Choctawes, old friends of the British colonies, seemed on the point of turning against them. The five nations were half one for France. In November, a large depu- deputation of them had come to renew their chain of friendship at Montreal. So it's a moment in which something could be done, but the reality is it's just these personalities were too big and too conflicted. And we see that, or Parkman sees this in the letters of the governor and the letters of the general. So this, this, maybe this chapter should have been called like the governor and the general. That'd be a little bit more poetic maybe. Um, but yeah, that's the, the theme of this, this chapter. Now, despite this bad relationship they have and despite their conflicts, they are able to kind of dream up new campaigns built for the next year, built on this foundation of, of optimism. And where would this campaign take place? Well, it would be more fighting on the, in the Hudson Valley, right? Specifically the, the Battle of Fort William Henry, which is what is described in Chapter 15, just called Fort William Henry. So here we get the slipping back and forth between the, the behind the scenes stuff, the, the pl- plotting, the planning, the organization, um, the internal drama of the war, and then the battlefield. So that is Chapter 15, Fort William Henry, a major French victory as well. Um, now, both the British and the French were, were kind of plotting campaigns in this region. You know, of course, the British just lost Oswego. So they were trying to take that back, um, you know, so they could have access and begin to attack uh, what would become Fort Tic- Ticonderoga, which was kind of the last real Hudson Valley fort that could have gotten in the way of an invasion of Quebec. And, then, and, the, and the French, meanwhile, are trying to press their advantage in moving on Fort William Henry. Um, and that's what happens. The French are able to move in with something like 7000 troops and the British garrison at... Fort William Henry was like two or 3,000. And after a two-day siege, the fort um, surrenders. And the most notable thing about the capture of Fort William Henry is the, the plunder and the massacre that followed it. Now, if, if you go to the Wikipedia entry on this for the massacre, because you know it's not clear how many people died in this massacre. Estimates range from something like 200 to 1,500. So we really don't have a clear idea. Of how many died, probably the higher number is a bit too high. Maybe the lower number is a bit too low. I don't know, um, but um, so the terms of the surrender quote were that this is from Wikipedia were that the British and the camp followers would be allowed to withdraw under French escort to Fort Edward with full honors of war on the condition that they refrain from fighting for eighteen months. They were allowed to keep their muskets as a sy- symbolic symbol and a symbolic. Cannon, single symbolic cannon, but no ammunition. In addition, British authorities were to release French prisoners within three months. Montcalm, before agreeing this, to these terms, tried to make sure that his Indian allies understood them and that the chiefs would undertake to restrain their men. This process was complicated by the diversity within the Indian camp. So that, that interpretation is sort of uh, supported here by, by Parkman, who, who suggests that really the Indians just didn't really understand. Not, not to engage in this post-siege massacre, like they didn't get the orders or whatever. Um, but here's what he writes. By signaling the capitulation, Montcalm called, or before signing the capitulation, Montcalm called the Indian chiefs to council and asked them to consent to the conditions and promised to restrain their young warriors from any disorder. They approved everything and promised everything. The garrison then evacuated the fort and marched to join their comrades in the entrenched camp, which was included in the surrender. No sooner were they gone than a crowd of Indians clamoring through the embrasures in search of rum and plunder, and then they, Parkman proceeds to describe how they got drunk, and, and here he writes uh, by the advice of Montcalm the English stove their rum barrels, but the in- Indians were already drunk enough with homicidal rage. Um, oh no, he's saying here they were drunk with homicidal rage, so they weren't drunk on the rum, and the glitter in their victorious eyes told of the devil within. I mean, here we got some pretty racist language, which we come to expect from Parkman in respect to the Indians. Again, I do think Parkman is doing better than some other 19th century Americans in seeing the Indians as ha- having a history, uh, appreciating their diversity of cultures and political systems and that, but he still falls into this racist language of really seeing them as, a, as almost a, a separate branch of humanity with separate values and morality and, and, and all that. And I think it just comes down to a different culture of war ultimately. And, and that's come up a lot in this series uh, in the, of books. It's just how different attitudes about war, the different attitude of what's the fate of a prisoner, uh, different attitudes about torture, or whatever it might be. But anyways, this, the massacre happens. And, and we're not quite sure how many died, but it is a major event in, in that. And the consequence of this massacre is we start to see some Um, breakdown in the in the discipline among the French troops uh, the breakdown of order the 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 tensions between the different Indian allies and you know despite this reaching this high point of uh, succeeding in organizing most of the Indians of North America against the British uh, you know it it, in this case it led to this breakdown of, of discipline and You know, it's very different war goals, goals, I guess, and very different strategies and different attitudes about what a proper military campaign should be. Um, Parkman writes, on the morning after the massacre, the Indians decamped in a body and set out for Montreal, carrying with them their plunder and some 200 prisoners, whom it is said could not be got out of their hands. The soldiers were set to the work of demolishing the English fort and the task occupied several days. Um, But, you know, it seems the Indians sort of come and go and are doing their own thing and not really under the normal military discipline of the French armies. So, you know, still, they were allies. So um, I don't know if in the if in the final analysis, were these alliances useful to the French or not? I suppose they probably were. But Parkman here is pointing out that it did lead to this kind of breakdown of, of authority. Um, so with this chapter, we actually end Parkman's part one of Montcalm and Wolf. This was originally published in two volumes. Um, so part one covered the first 15 chapters, and the part two covers 1958 till, till the end of the war. But we don't really have to worry too much about that break. It doesn't really matter for us. Um, I think it was just for publication in those days, you know. It was a thick book, and it had to be put together in two volumes. There's no real thematic break, except maybe volume one is about French victories. Volume two is more about English and British victories. But uh, chapter 16 is called A Winter of Discontent. So now we're back to this flipping. So we we, we, we spent time in Quebec. Then we went to the battlefield. And then we flip over to England's uh, the, or the English North American attitude. And basically, it is what it. Sounds like a winner of discontent. This is the winner of 1957 to 58. Um, so the aftermath of the Battle of Fort William Henry in 15, 1757 led to this feeling of disaster. You had defeat after defeat in the Hudson Valley. The frontier was basically opened up to Indian attacks. And rumors of English disaster spread throughout the, the colonies. Quote, close on the fall of Fort William Henry came crazy rumors of disaster running like wildfire through the colonies. The number and ferocity of the enemy were grossly exaggerated. There was a cry that they would seize Albany and New York itself. While it was reported that Webb, as much frightened as the rest, was for retreating to the highlands with the Hudson. Uh, of the Hudson, This was the day after the capitulation when a part only of the militia had yet appeared. If Montcalm had seized the moment and marched that afternoon to Fort Edward, it is not impossible that the confusion might have carried it by a coup de main. Um, here was an opportunity for Vaudreuil, and he did not, and he did not fail to use it. Jealous of his rival's export, he spared no pains to tarnish it. Um, so now we're back to the tensions in New France in the political system that undermines this war effort, because Vaudreuil uses this moment to to achieve greater political authority in Quebec over his enemy Montcalm. You know, this this campaign was organized by the governor. That's why he was able to do, basically, use this to justify this um, kind of batter, this this verbal war against his his supposed ally, but really a political opponent, someone who seemed to threaten in his his position. So we see here how sort of both sides sort of fail the moment the the British in in kind of their terror and their feeling the end is coming, um, and the French in just failing to seize the military advantage instead seen this advantage largely in political terms at least the, the governor at the time so then we get um, chapter 17 uh, Fran- which is about François de Gaulle um, he was the final intendant of New France so we actually get uh, his whole story from 1753 to 1760 so you know we're you know like I said the flipping back and forth while we're in Fort William Henry now we get a couple of chapters about the um, about the home front, if you will, and the story of Francois um, Bigot, B-I-G-O-T, Bigot, I guess. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Um, but he was the final intendant. So the intendant, just to review, was the was a newer position created in the 8th, 17th century by Louis the 14th to be. Kind of Not a co-governor But someone who speaks for the king And he was more responsible for the finances While the governor general was more in control Of the military And uh, he, the other governors were under him So yeah this was the problem with the Absolute system in New France according to Parkman is that you didn't have clear chains of authority you Or even if you did They were, they were divided You didn't have a center figure Who could be the leader Of all of these different institutions And You know, I guess you could say the same thing is true in the British colonies as a whole, but, you know, that diversity, those conflicts had some strength to them um, because they weren't based on kind of an administrative chaos and a lot of petty uh, grievances being worked out at the detriment of the the empire. Um, So the story of Bigot is one of corruption. That is the story. In fact, he was, after the fall of New France, Prosecuted as a for corruption, as the final um, intended in New France. And so, at a time when New France was collapsing, when every resource was needed just for the defense of Quebec, um, this guy, you know, was spending most of his time, it seems, involved in various ways to pilfer the treasury. But, it, but Parkman's clear here, it wasn't just him. He was an attendant on top of an entire system of corruption that went way, way back. Uh, quote The vast, jarring, discordant mechanism of corruption grew uncontrollable. It seized upon Bigot and dragged him, despite himself, into perils which his prudence would have shunned. He was becoming a victim of to the rapacity of his own confederates, whom he dared not offend by refusing his um, conviance and his signature to frauds, which became more and more recklessly audacious. He asked to leave to retire from office in the hope that his successor would bear the brunt of the ministerial displeasure. P.I. had withdrawn already and with it, the fruits of his plunder brought land and bought land in France where he thought himself safe. But though the intendant had long been an object of distrust and yet often been warned to mend his ways, yet such was his energy, his executive power, and his fertility to resources that in the crisis of the war, it was hard to dispense with him. Um, a really great summary of just the, the ultimate problem of the absolutist system in in new france so another very useful chapter that covers like the whole kind of the five it's, it's really the final chapter we get in the whole book that deals with the politics of of new france but it's a it's a pretty uh um, farcical conclusion to this epic epic history um the story being just this great experiment in new world absolutism it's kind of just got fell just fell apart because under the weight of its own corruption. Then in chapter 18 we get uh Pitt, 1757 to 1758. And Pitt is, of course, going to be the figure who is going to focus the resources of, of Great Britain in winning this war in the New World. You know, of course, they're now part of a global war, and he's responsible for all that as as prime minister. But he is going to be the one who bankrolls the effort to basically, you know, put all the money on the table that was necessary for the to fund this this conflict. Parkman himself has nothing but great things to say about um, or very few bad things to say about um, Pitt. Um, What does he got here? The great commoner was not a man of the people in the popular sense of that hackneyed phrase. Though himself poor, being the younger son, he came of a rich and influential family. He was a partisan at heart, both his faults and his virtues, his proud incorruptibility and passionate dominating patriotism bore the patrician stamp. Yet he loved liberty and he loved the people because they were the English people. The effusive humanitarianism of today had no part in him and the democracy of today would detest him. Yet to the middle class of England of his own time, that unenfranchised England, which had little representation in Parliament, he was a voice and inspiration and a tower of strength. He would not flatter the people, but turning with contempt from the tricks and devices of official politics, he withdrew himself with confidence that never wavered on their patriotism and public spirit. He answered them with a boundless trust, asked but to follow his lead, give him without stint of their money and their blood, loved him for his domestic virtues and his disinterestedness, believed him even in his self-contradiction, and idealized him even in his bursts of arrogant passion." A nice description of him. Um, yeah, I, I think largely he sees him. I guess he has faults, but those faults are, are faults that actually are advantages given his position and his, and his need. He, he calls him a British Roman at one point. You know, maybe that's what England needed at the time, he says. So the real story here, of course, is this focusing on America by Pitt, focusing resources, focusing troops focusing on, on supplies and just political capital to make sure the war is won in, in England or in, in America. Um, now, he contrasts, Parkman, I mean, contrasts him with Pompadour. And I talked about that in the previous episode, how I'm a bit skeptical about Parkman's portrayal of Madame de Pompadour, uh, thinking that this negative historiographical portrayal of her probably comes mostly out of sexism, just because I see that so often whenever powerful women. uh, Also say that he talks here about uh, Pitt really becoming the first person who's conscious of and aware of the global scale of the British Empire and the global ambitions of the the British state at the the time. Despite a focus on America for, for military reasons, he is envisioning this global empire. All right, um, and then the last chapter I want to talk about today is Lewisburg, 1758. So this is kind of the battle that turns the tide. Um, now, since King George's War, Lewisburg, when Louisburg was taken by the British, returned to France in the peace, it had been strengthened um, quite significantly. So it would be a harder nut to crack in 1758 than it was a decade earlier. But nevertheless, we get, so this is that flipping back and forth, right? We've gone from the backroom stuff the political stuff, now back to another battle. Um, and, you know, here is, the importance of this chapter is really, I think, the emergence of Wolfe as a major commander. He wasn't yet the kind of commander-in-chief of the forces in America. He was just one of, of, of several generals. But this was when he first shows up in the text, actually. In a book called Montcalm and Wolf, it takes pretty much 400 pages out of 600 pages before General Wolfe even shows up. Uh, that's how important his final, his his campaign is, in turning the tide. I mean, he uh, that's that he's still on the first. He's still in the title, right? Despite only showing up in the last third of the book. Um, but this is a obviously a major, major French defeat. Um, the, the the siege, um, six thousand lost, six thousand troops lost in the siege of of Louisbourg. Uh, it. You know just like in the previous war it it that louisbourg was a port by which you needed to take before you could move on quebec because of it controlled the saint Lawrence you know valley and access to quebec it uh, was also a site of privateering and you know from the british point of view piracy uh just a significant loss of troops you know when During the conquest of New France, I think the British had like 30,000 men. The French had like 10,000. You know, these 6,000 men could have really made a big difference in that war, but uh, lost. Um, But I think most important for Parkman is just how this battle emerged or or brought forth uh, Wolf. Um, So we get a little bit about Wolf as a general here. Uh, Quote, the ardent and indomitable Wolf had been the life of the siege Whenever there was need of a quick eye, a prompt decision, and a bold dash, there his lank figure was always in the front. Yet he was only half pleased with what had been done. The capture of Louisbourg, he thought, should be but the prelude to a greater conquest. And he had hoped that on the field the army would sail up to St. Lawrence and attack Quebec. Imp- impudent and impatient by nature and irritable with disease, he chafed at the delay that followed the capitulation and wrote to his father a few days after. Um, so that's the kind of man he is. He's a man who's willing to take advantage, something no other general seemed to do in this war. You know, they would win a battle and then wait another year before another campaign. Um, Wolf was someone who wanted to take that advantage right away. Um, Now, of course, it would be another year before he could initiate his conquest of New France. Um, But, but, you know, it would come, of course. So that's it for today. Uh, That's the next chunk of the book. Two left. We're almost to the end here. Um, two more episodes before we kind of finally finish up with Francis Parkman. Um, so the next episode will cover chapters twenty through twenty-five. It will deal with the this. This is mostly all military history. Um, it'll we'll get the the fall the, the battles of three forts, um, the Fort Peck Fort, Fort Frontenac, and Fort Duskene. Um yeah, Ticonderoga was a French victory. The others were British victories. Uh, that kind of you know, opened up, along with the siege of Louisbourg, opened up the door to the conquest of Quebec. Um, then we get a chapter about Wolfe and Wolfe's plans for, for seizing Quebec. So we're going to be right to the end uh, after the next episode. So I'm looking forward to finishing up the series with you. Looking forward to finishing up with uh, Francis Parkman and talking about the conquest of, of new, the ultimate conquest of, of new France. So yeah, that's going to be it for now. I will, we'll see you next time. Thanks as always for listening. Their ranks were flying. Brave wolf then seemed to wake as he lay dying. He lifted up his head while the guns did rattle, and to his army said, How goes the battle? His aide-de-camp...